Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Hope you're staying warm. That's a challenge in most parts of the country these days. We're going to talk about this cold weather pattern that has settled in over much of the country with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. He'll put this cold snap in historical perspective and what he sees ahead for this winter. Also, we're going to talk today with uh, the U.S. Grains Council about a new study that is out showing again the value, the importance of access to foreign markets for grain exports. Obviously, that's important to farmers and, and selling goods, but there's a lot more to it when you look at the jobs that are created and things like that. We'll take a look at that study. And uh, it's been a week of looking at the uh, reaction to the WASDE numbers and where these markets are at and going. We'll get some more thoughts on that from Joe Camp with Comstock Investments. All that coming up on today's program. But we'll start it off with a look at the news with Phil Brasher from AgriPulse Communications. Phil, as always, thank you for joining us. Um, what is the reaction to the House Ag Committee, the Democrats on the committee pushing through their ag stimulus bill despite Republican opposition? Uh, where's this headed? Well, it's uh, headed <laughs> headed to the House floor eventually, uh, probably, and uh, to the Senate. Um, um, after that, uh, you know, the, the Democrats. Uh, the big uh, the big question is not what's really in the ag bill in terms of uh, whether it will pass. I think the, uh, the 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 biggest question is about the minimum wage increase that was attached by another committee. Um, you know, you know, to increase the uh, federal minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, um, that could have some problem in the Senate. That's the big, uh, big question, and probably the biggest question about wage. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it, it's it's on a uh, it's on the fast track. But is this a the way they went about it? They pushed it through because they had the majority. Uh, is this? A sign of things to come and how business will be done, you think, in the House Ag Committee, which uh, usually if you're finding a place that has some bipartisanship, that's as close as you're going to find in Congress. Uh, or will, was this an outlier, or do you think this is kind of the way things are going to be moving forward? Well, it's, there's no question that the committee is changing. Uh, you look at the Democratic and the majority side, and it's uh, much more urban than it used to be because there are there are very few rural Democrats left. Uh, you know, rural America has really uh, polarized uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's really moved into the Republican camp. Uh, urban, uh, the cities, the suburbs have increasingly moved into the Democratic camp. So that's reflected on the committee. So there is that change. However, I think you will see going forward, you'll probably see a little more return bipartisanship. And this is not the first time Republicans, uh, there have been some times when Republicans are pushing things through. I call your attention to the uh, the Farm Bill a um, couple of, uh, I guess about three years ago now, when uh, Republicans uh, attached uh, the cuts to uh, SNAP, to food stamp program. Uh, Democrats were livid. Uh, they opposed the bill, and uh, but uh, Republicans got it through the committee. 
actually happened with the 1996 Farm Bill, Freedom to Farm. That was uh, uh, highly partisan as well. It was something that was uh, pushed on the committee by uh, then Speaker Gingrich. I, um, you know, the decoupling of uh, farm payments, phasing out uh, farm payments. So it's happened before. Um, it's not the, not the first time I've seen it, but um, I, I think you will see some. But uh, I think that uh, the longer-range story is uh, and it, it's significant, and that's which you just don't have a lot of. You have less rural representation on the, uh, the Democratic side. Yeah, I think you've hit on the big story there. Farm districts. Yeah, uh, you are right. The change in the in the the representation across the country, those rural areas that have been uh, that are become more Republican, the urban areas more Democrat. As time goes on, that's being reflected now in the uh, ag committees, and that what just means. And when we look at this House ag committee, their focus uh, is going to be in different areas, and maybe we've seen in the past, and uh, that is something we will be seeing, I think, as we move forward. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it was a very significant uh, loss uh, uh, when uh, Colin Peterson uh, lost his race. Um, of course, Democrat, he was uh, in many ways uh, the voice. Not, I mean, he was the voice uh, for uh, a lot of agriculture in the in the Democratic Party. A lot of uh, you know conventional, larger scale agriculture, production agriculture. Right. Well. And and someone who brought a bipartisan approach to things, so we'll see if someone picks that up. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see as uh, you know we have all this talk about pushing forward with new climate policies and things like that, and we keep hearing from different segments of agriculture saying we want a seat at the table, we want to be heard. This table gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. That's- that's going to be the thing we're really going to be watching. Uh, you know, we're going to have to get past the, the uh, this uh, stimulus bill, and uh, and this is going to be a slower developing. Uh, what we do on climate, it could be a multi-stage, but uh, that is a very significant. There is a. It is hard to understate the importance of this issue to agriculture and. Um, the uh, the far-reaching ramifications of what both the administration and Congress may do on this issue. There is pressure from all quarters. There's pressure from uh, uh, corporations, uh, the food chain, um, from corporations that want credits uh, to offset their emissions. Uh, you know, obviously, it's a very high priority for the Biden administration and and for the Democrats in Congress. So there is going to be action. The question is what. what that's going to be and what it's going to mean for farmers. Yeah, a couple of big issues, big unknowns for agriculture. Where will climate policy go and where will trade policy go with this new administration and this Mm -hmm. new Congress? Uh, Finally, uh, Phil, before we let you go, uh, what are you hearing about uh, when we might see a vote on confirmation for Michael Regan at EPA and Tom Vilsack at USDA? Well, we get past this impeachment uh, trial. They are... uh, they are pretty close in line, so hopefully for the end of this month, anyway. Uh, but it's this impeachment trial has held up uh, action on uh, confirmations. There's a series of them, and in, uh, um, in, uh, in line. But uh, Vilsack is uh, uh, at, the, at the top of that list, and uh, Michael Regan uh, for EPA is not far from not far behind. 
Yeah, it seems I'm like uh, their confirmation. Be one to get through. Yeah, it would seem like a, just a formality that it's going to get done, but uh, you have to have the actual vote, so they've got to get those scheduled yet. All right, <laughs> Phil, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Okay. Great. Great to be here. Take care. Phil Brasher with AgriPulse communications yeah i mean those are just two huge issues big unknowns at this point where that will have great impact on agriculture where will climate policy go and where will agriculture fit into that and where does trade policy go with this new administration it's still yet to be seen so those are big issues we'll be watching right now we're watching the thermometer and it keeps dropping as across much of the country and we're wondering how cold is it going to get? How long is this going to last? We'll talk with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Get some uh, perspective on this next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. Beware of telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you. Call is threatening you with arrest or other legal action and demanding money are not from us. If you receive a call like this, hang up, do not provide them with any form of payment or information. Report the call at oig.ssa.gov. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, will the new Congress and the new administration be able to get something done on a comprehensive infrastructure plan? Let's talk about it with Todd Van Hoos, president and CEO of the Farm Credit Council. I know that you are hopeful and doing all you can to uh, try to get something done on infrastructure. We're optimistic. We think the Congress and the Biden administration are going to be focused on infrastructure. And, and we're having a pretty good reaction as we talk to people on Capitol Hill and in the Biden administration about the unique needs in rural America and hoping that they will focus on those. It seems here we have this great need in the country and seemingly bipartisan support. Can they get past the politics to get it done? I think there's an opportunity here. I think there's a willingness of both parties to try to find something that they can work on productively. And when you look at this, the scale of the issues involved, infrastructure is someplace that does have bipartisan support. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. 800-955-4538. 
Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the fact that it's cold in the middle of February, that's not exactly uh, shattering and uh, earth-shaking news. I mean, we expect that. But the length of this cold snap has a lot of us kind of shaking our heads and uh, wondering how long it's going to go on. Let's uh, get some perspective on this with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, thank you for joining us. It seems like it's been a while since we've had uh, uh, an extended, a prolonged cold spell quite like this. Correct. And, you know, some people would say a day or two of cold is plenty for them, but we are talking and, and, and we are susceptible to, to extreme cold even into February, even in really early March, considering. But, uh, you know, usually you get a few days of it and then you're done. You know, we're, you know, we're a week into this. And unfortunately, we have, depending on how you want to slice it, uh, you know, some of the extreme cold is going to last into early next week. And the colder than average is going to continue even all the way through next week. Though we will see some moderation during the during the week, so that's been you know the the cold is is extreme somewhat for this time of year, but that's been the thing we tried to point out to people is is it's it's cold and the long lasting nature of it uh, is trying trying to point out things for livestock, watching out for livestock freeze up and things like that. Yeah, a lot of concerns. Uh... For people and animals, it's a it's a tough time right now, and uh, we have some winter storms kind of sweeping across the country as well. Right, uh, you know we've had you know in, in, in the upper Midwest we've had mostly lighter snows, uh, which are a nuisance. But you know once you get snow on the ground, it's not too bad. And actually, in a few places, especially in Nebraska, we put some snow on the ground that helped some of the winter wheat issues. And in the eastern uh, you know eastern Corn Belt. Uh, you know, they got a little bit of snow that helped out uh, covering their winter wheat, too. They said it was a nice change of pace. Uh, but, you know, especially the southern plains, uh, they're going to get clipped again. Uh, Texas got theirs, you know, early, somewhat earlier this week. And then up the Ohio Valley has been combinations of rain, snow, ice that have been uh, very unpleasant, very difficult. And unfortunately, we've had some loss of life along with that. On the ag side, you know, it's, it's, that's problematic for, uh, you know, for people getting out, moving around, tougher on livestock. Uh, you know, getting back to the cold, that's the other thing, too, is, you know, we're starting to get to that time where people are starting to get into some of the early calving. And this cold, along with some of these potential winter storms, always makes for a really tough calving time. And as we go further north in the plains, it's going to be getting into more of that calving time uh, people also. So it's going to be a continuing struggle for them. Does this fit into the La Nina pattern? It it really kind of does. You know, this is more like what we would expect with La Nina. Maybe not necessarily the extreme cold, but, re, you know, repeated cold, longer lasting, uh, more storm systems, uh, you know, maybe not big, but repeated storm systems that drop snow. So, 
you know, th- this is one of the things that the national folks had kind of talked about back in the fall was that they said, you know, the start of winter might not be too bad. And then later on, it would be, you know, that look for the impact of La Nina more later in the winter. So they hit this one pretty well. Um, now, we, we have to put this in the context here, too, because the La Nina is actually starting to weaken um, that the sea surface temperatures in the Pacific and some of the other measures of La Nina are starting to weaken somewhat, which we expected to see happen as we got closer to spring. Uh, we're going to stay in La Nina probably into the spring, and then it looks more likely like the La Nina fades away. The thing we have to watch out for is that there is, uh, you know, uh, the, the probabilities haven't changed very much, but there's a probability of La Nina swinging back um, late in the fall, early winter next year. Uh, and that does give us a, a unique perspective and we can look at some other, I call them in-between years, where we went between, you know, between two La Ninas back to back and what happens during those years. We've got a couple indicators of what that the, the summer might be if we look at those kinds of La Nina years. Hmm. So what are you thinking this spring is going to be like? We're we starting to, you know, we'd like to think ahead to warmer times of getting outside and uh, maybe getting to the fields. Uh, and we always like to see how early we can get out there, it seems like. But is that in the cards, you think, this year, or do we know? I, I think we are. You know, the I, I saw some things on social media about early planting, huh, and then showing pictures of snowfall. A couple things we got to remember. Um, there, there's a lot of snow. Uh, there's kind of a band from central Nebraska into Iowa and then up into parts of Minnesota, Wisconsin, northern Illinois, where we have a foot plus of snow. And in those areas, we've maybe got, uh, you know, a couple inches of water on the ground. But you know, that can melt relatively quickly once we start warming up. And underneath a lot of this area, our soils are still quite dry. So we, we, you know, some of that water may enter the soil. A lot of it's going to run off. So once we start melting, and and, and the outlooks right now, um, you know, the warm-up is slow, but we don't see uh, much additional precipitation in the good part of the plains and corn belt. Uh, over the next couple of weeks. So we're going to start working on, uh, start warming up and start working on the snowpack. We're going to get it out of here. Um, and then we have these dry soils underneath. And those dry soils, uh, they don't take a lot to heat up. So I'm still quite confident that at worst we're close to average planting in most of, and really plains in most of the corn belt because we don't have any places that are too wet at this point. And I think, in fact, we could still, we can still see some early planting. Um, and I would encourage people to try to take advantage of that, not, you know, don't go take big risks, but take advantage of it because if you've got dry soil, you can get in a little bit early, beat some of the summer heat, plus you can take advantage of trying to get that good rooting depth, which we probably need to have given how dry our soils are to be able to take advantage of water as we go along. So I, I think planting is going to go along, you know, unless we see a big change, planting is going to go along really pretty well this spring. Even when we do get rains with these dry soils, um, you know, that shouldn't slow things down too much, you know, especially in the, the western Corn Belt Plains area. And some of the snow, uh, at least where I'm at here in Illinois, doesn't have a lot of uh, moisture in it. I mean, it's pretty light and fluffy in some places. The other thing is, Dennis, unlike other years where we were worried about snow melt and flooding, I mean, a lot of these rivers are pretty low. They could handle some moisture and some water levels uh, could stand to go up some this year. Yeah, I mean you're 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 very much correct. Eastern Corn Belt, you know, we've had some flooding issues 
starting on the Ohio and parts of the Eastern Corn Belt. So, I mean, we'll have to watch for that. That, that um, I, I don't think there'll be major problems, but there'll be some minor problems. Once you get to the Mississippi and West, yeah, things have been relatively dry. So, uh, you know, at, at worst, rivers are, are near average this time of year. But, yeah, they can handle this, this runoff pretty well. Another thing people should watch out for real quickly with this cold they may not think about is that we can get freeze-up on rivers and we can get ice jamming on rivers. So if you have land that is close to, you know, some, some minor rivers, you might keep an eye on those kinds of things because these, these ice jams can pop up and cause localized flooding. So if you have livestock in that area, things at risk, you to keep an eye on those while this cold is going on. And finally, uh, we keep a close watch on uh, South America. They're in their soybean harvest and looking to plant uh, their second uh, crop, their corn crop, that safrina crop. Uh, what are their weather patterns down there showing? Um, you know, right now there has been a, a flip, you know, as we, we talked about a little bit before, towards some wetter conditions in a good chunk of Brazil. Uh, looks like that's going to continue that way. Last Recently, eastern parts of, of Brazil have been wetter. Western parts have been a little bit drier, been allowing some of that planting to go on. As we get look down into, into the southern part of Brazil and into Argentina, they have been somewhat drier, and that looks like over the next 10 days, that's likely going to continue to stay that way. So they've maybe got some dryness issues starting to pop up down in Argentina while uh, we don't have as many issues as we maybe had earlier in the growing season up in Brazil. All right. Well, Dennis, thanks a lot. So the the warm thought and the optimistic thought as we uh, brace for this another blast of cold weather here for a few more days is maybe uh, some chances of an early early spring, getting out and get some early field work done, right? Definitely. And the other thing we got to remember, too, is climatology is is moving up fairly rapidly this time of year so warmer temperatures are going to be on the way higher sun angle is going to melt that snow off and start to warm up soil so yeah it's going to be a little slow going at first but i think we'll we'll get there pretty quickly afterwards all right thanks dennis appreciate it happy to do it you guys take care you too dennis toddy director of the usda midwest climate hub yeah it is cold be careful out there. A lot of challenges taking care of the livestock and doing the chores. But be careful. All right. Up next, we know we talk a lot about it, the value of exports. Um, there's another study out confirming that and also showing the, how, how widespread the benefits are. When you look at jobs and things like that, uh, the access into those foreign markets is critical. We'll talk about it with the U.S. Grains Council. That's next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Adams on Agriculture. agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry. The pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of the topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you a guest important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture. 
What kitchen gadget is so essential to food safety that no home should be without it? I'm registered dietitian nutritionist Toby Smithson. A food thermometer isn't just for meat and poultry. It will help you avoid food poisoning from egg dishes, casseroles, and leftovers by ensuring they're fully cooked by reaching a safe minimum internal temperature. Heat leftovers and casseroles to at least 165 degrees and egg dishes to at least 160 degrees. You'll find more food safety tips at homefoodsafety.org. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Grain markets are mostly higher across the board, coming back after some of Thursday's losses. It feels as though grains could be attempting to set up ranges to trade the balance of February into March until more is known about U.S. spring weather and the pace of demand for corn and soybeans. On the Board of Trade, March soybeans trading four cents higher at 13.71 and a quarter of a cent. The May contract up three and three quarters at 13.70 and a fraction. March corn trading a penny and a fraction higher at 542 and a half cent. The May contract up three quarters of a cent at 540 and three quarters. Chicago wheat march up eight and a fraction at 642 and a fraction. Kansas City wheat march up 11 and three quarters at 622 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat march up eight and a fraction at 624 and a half cent. The May contract up seven and a fraction at 634 and a fraction. Cash cattle trade is coming down the wire again, which is becoming near a weekly event. Cash cattle is expected to trade a dollar higher unless packers finally say enough is enough. However, it is not likely as strong beef demand needs to be met. Hogs will be the wild card today as futures are extremely overbought and cash is expected to remain steady. April lean hogs trading 65 cents higher at 84.90. The May contract up 62 at 87.02. For feeder cattle, the March contract up 85 at 140.02. The April contract up 62 at 140.40.01. For live cattle, the April contract up $1.20 at 124.32. The June contract up 92 at 120.45. In cash cattle trade, a late round of live trade took place in Nebraska and Iowa last evening at mostly $114, but prior Private sources say that in Iowa, a few deals were marked as high as $116 per hundredweight. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. I can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with geeks on site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
And we're joined now by Melissa Kessler, Strategic Relations Director for the U.S. Grains Council. Melissa, thank you for joining us. I, I, I know you have a, a new study out, uh, kind of the latest in a series, showing the importance of access to foreign markets, uh, how valuable those exports are. What's the latest report tell us? Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Yes, um, we did release a study this week that we did in cooperation with the National Corn Growers Association to examine what that economic impact is, not just of direct farm sales, but to the wider economy of grains and grains exports. We look at the exports of corn, sorghum, barley, as well as distillers grains, ethanol, and some of the meat products that have to be produced with corn because those livestock eat corn or other feed grains. Um, and we found in the study that while those direct exports were worth about $23 billion in 2008, um, the total economic impact on the economy was almost $65 billion. So that really shows that follow-on effect of every dollar produced on the farm in local communities as well for our as for our national economy. Yeah, I think that's the bigger picture. I mean, it's kind of obvious to say exports are important. It's a market for our farmers to sell their goods. But uh, and when you look at that broader aspect, that, that ripple effect that it has throughout the economy, that's what gets overlooked. That's a story that doesn't always get told. That's exactly right. And that's one reason we've done this study, and this is the fourth in a series, um, to demonstrate those follow-on effects. And yeah, farmers really know intuitively that exports are affecting their demand, which affects their price on the board, and it's affecting their basis very, you know, very locally and viscerally. Um, but I think it is harder to talk about those impacts beyond just the dollars spent even in a local community, um, but on a state or on the nation as a whole. And we know that agriculture and food in this country make up about 20% of the total economy. And it, that's a story we need to be telling out in the public and frankly even to each other within agriculture to realize that while we're a small numerically we're quite large economically to this nation and a story to be told in washington dc with a new administration and a new congress that uh, will be shaping trade policy moving forward and also uh, you know when you look at any policy that impacts agriculture then it would also impact uh, these jobs uh, that we're talking about and how it impacts the overall economy. That's exactly right. And, you know, we did this study. Um, the Grains Council is focused on overseas export market development. National corn growers are focused more on U.S. domestic policy, and they lobby um, in Washington, D.C., along with state organizations. And that's one reason we do this study together is because it's important for us to show how those exports um, really do contribute back to the country over and over again based on the investment farmers and the federal government make in export market development. On the NCGA and the policy side, it's important to be able to say for this congressional district or this state, the economic impact of this work was X number of millions or billions of dollars, because that's really what your legislators are hearing. Um, and that's really, you know, the full scope of our story of agriculture. We're talking with Melissa Kessler with the U.S. Grains Council. And Melissa, that's important as uh, we look in the terms of trade deals with other countries that help give us access and into those markets. Also important about funding for market development programs that often get overlooked, uh, but are very important to help you be able to, to get that work done in those foreign uh, countries. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, we sometimes say trade policy plus market development equals sales. You have to have strong trade policy to get you into a market to allow those products to go in and allow them to go in at a favorable rate and under favorable conditions. But you also have to do market development, go in there and really work with customers to make sure they understand the scope of the market, how to get your products, why U.S. products are preferred over other origins. And when you put those two things together, that's when you really get sales going in a big way. And both of those things have a heavy involvement from our government and from our industry. Farmers support both of those through their advocacy as well as through their checkoff dollars. Um, and the federal government supports market development through programs that are in the Farm Bill, including funds that come to our organization, the Grains Council. And when we look at uh, this past year and how we're starting off this year with our exports all the focus usually goes to china because they're huge and certainly we've seen the impact of their big buying here uh in the last few weeks but part of the untold story is the non-china sales that we're making those are significant too yeah, that's absolutely right. And China is capturing a lot of the headlines, and rightly so. We have exported or sold at this point, not fully exported, um, about 85% of what USDA projected we would for corn this entire marketing year. And that's really being driven by China. But we are seeing a lot of other players come in as well. Even this morning, I saw some export sales um, from countries in Central America reported by USDA, and that's supported by trade policy too. And we have to remember um, you know, there are a lot of countries in this world that need our corn and want our corn, including China, um, but not only limited to China. You still have, you know, the Mexico and Japan, Central American countries, Southeast Asia, um, parts of North Africa, and we are competitive in many of those places this marketing year. And that's the key is to be competitive. I mean, we talk about, you know, grain supply, grain quality, what we offer, but if you're not competitive on price, then it's hard uh, because we know there is a lot of competition out there. H how do you, as you look at developing a market, how do we assess the importance? Again, it gets back to trade policy. Being able to get in there is one thing, then to be able to have a competitive message is another. That's exactly right. Um, there is an access issue, uh, and price makes a lot of decisions in the market, obviously. That is, that is the thing that pulls together all of the information someone's looking at about a product. Um, but it's not always just price. There is definitely an understanding of how to get the product, an understanding of how to use the product. There's education about the market. We take for granted how much information we have about markets um, that a lot of places, you know, it's not that easy to get that information. Um, so there are, there are ways to lay that groundwork, and that's really what we do in market development. So when there is a choice between origins, um, there's a preference for U.S., and some markets, of course, pay a little bit more sometimes even to get U.S. origin because they know if they write a contract, it's going to be fulfilled. They know our logistics are going to make it happen. They trust the people that they're buying from. And those are all sort of intangibles that we as an origin do bring to the table. Well, you said trust. That's a big part of it, building relationships uh, with these countries and these buyers. That's such a big part of it. How have, the, how have your market development activities been hampered or changed or impacted by COVID in the last year? Yeah, it's been an interesting mix because in some ways, you know, a lot of the work we did before COVID was in person. Um, for 60 years, we've been bringing buyers and other stakeholders, government officials, regulators, media, all of that, to the U.S. 
to see our infrastructure and to see our farms, and they love that experience. And likewise, we send farmers overseas to meet with customers directly. Obviously, we're not able to do that right now because of COVID restrictions. We've moved a lot of that to virtual, um, and we've also been able to, some of our overseas offices especially have been able to really target specific customers um, to talk with some that they maybe didn't have access to before because you know the company was busy doing other things or because we would ask people to travel, and that's obviously a large time burden. Um, and doing something virtually is a lot quicker. Um, we also have access, you know, we're able to put customers together with certain consultants or with certain staff experts we have much more immediately than in the past. So while it's really, it's changed our programming enormously, um, it's also offered some new opportunities and certainly things we think are going to stick around even after COVID. Um, but I'll tell you, as soon as we can get on some planes, I think we're going to be doing that. And we, we hear from our customers, they very much want to come back to the U.S. when it's safe and when it's appropriate. Melissa, we'll wrap up with this. Uh, we, we're coming off uh, the, the Trump administration's use of tariffs. They, President Trump really liked tariffs. We're waiting to see what Joe Biden does. Uh, he's not really made a move like in the case of China to, to lift uh, more tariffs. So we're waiting to see on that. What has been the impact as you look back now on tariffs on our trade and, and how they could impact us moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, we will see what happens, what the Biden administration decides to do. From our perspective, we're really, again, interested in access and in market development. And tariffs are essentially taxes. They, they raise the cost of a product. So we have applied tariffs. Um, other countries have applied tariffs to us. There's been a lot of tariff application in the last, you know, recent period. And that has, in some ways, you know, not been related to agriculture. We, are, we have tariffs applied to us that originated from issues way outside of agriculture. We have seen that agriculture kind of has to be the target in a lot of ways. Um, and we also, we have challenges with tariffs. So that's really, I mean, frankly, where we're focused is how do we address some of the tariffs we're facing and say China's a great example on ethanol um, that's impeding access to that market. So, you know, it's a complex question, um, and I think one that is uh, going to be wrapped up in the larger approach to trade policy that this administration takes, as well as the larger approach to international relations that this administration takes. It's all sort of in one bucket. And as we've also seen, and I think this study demonstrates going back to that, um, you know, what happens overseas directly affects what happens in our own local communities. And, you know, seeing that picture is a large part of the work that we do, um, both talking with government officials, our own members, and our customers overseas. Yeah, it's a domino effect. These things are interconnected, and uh, uh, sometimes people fail to look at the whole picture. They just look at parts, but they are connected. Melissa, thank you very much. Good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Melissa Kessler, Strategic Relations Director for the U.S. Grains Council. Well, it's been quite an interesting week with the markets. We'll get some thoughts uh, from Joe Camp with Comstock Investments on the markets next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, 
you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and, if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by HeartValve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. So let's start with the latest news concerning a case against ethanol duties in Peru. What can you tell us? The decision there is that they are reversing an earlier decision to impose import duties on U.S. ethanol going into Peru. Peru, as you might know, has been a rapidly emerging market for us over the past several years, and we began to export a fair amount of fuel ethanol to that country and then they slapped this import tax on us and it really put the brakes on our exports to that marketplace. So the body that reviewed that tariff and you know, looked at our challenge of that tariff uh, sided with us and they will be reversing that import tax and, and that should really reopen that market to our product. We desperately need demand right now so uh, very excited to hopefully get back into, the, into Peru and in a big way. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 
Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Interesting times with the markets. Let's talk it over with Joe Camp, Director of Managed Programs for Comstock Investments. Joe, thank you for joining us. So basically, have we recovered from, it seems strange to say this, we're having to recover from a report that showed tightening corn and soybean stocks. Wow, yeah, better start at the crop report. That was the big news of the week, although it wasn't a lot of changing parts on that report. Maybe that was part of the sell-off is because, the trade didn't get what it was expecting. In terms of the U.S. carryout numbers, they were down, but uh, not by as much as anticipated. They raised exports, USDA analysts did, but not by as much as thought. It's a conservative approach for the U.S. balance sheet, not a big surprise. What was uh, more surprising or maybe more frustrating or more negative was that there wasn't as much change or movement, uh, particularly on uh, supply coming down and demand up on the global balance sheet. So China, for example, we did see a higher import for uh, corn forecast from USDA, but we did not see a, a big reduction in ending stocks like we'd expect. So uh, a reaction that is a little bit negative here as we kind of run out of fresh news, at least for now. Not that long ago, would, wouldn't that same report have been a very bullish report? I think so. If you're talking about the ending stocks numbers mm -hmm. just in and of themselves, corn carryout moving lower, it's still a, a billion and a half bushels, but towards a much less comfortable um, uh, situation than we were looking at certainly a year ago or even that uh, uh, we had thought um, or was on paper a couple of months ago. And then more particularly soybeans, when you talk about a carryout number of 140 million bushels, that's pipeline supply or less something we can get through pretty quickly. So on the face of it, yeah, it was a bullish uh, set of numbers, but it just wasn't uh, like we had priced in maybe to the market up to that point. So now we're going to look at numbers coming soon from USDA's Outlook Conference about what they think will be acres planted this year. And here we are in February, solely, you know, just complete projections at this point, but yet I'm guessing the trade will will probably react pretty strongly to what those numbers are. 
Yeah, we've got some baseline numbers to work with uh, already from USDA where they look for uh, corn acres, I believe, down 1 million and soybeans up 6. But uh, those are the very early ones. What we should start to see is movement, probably a reflection of these higher crop prices recently saying that both corn and soybean area can expand here in 2021. Still thinking that we've got that bias towards soybean acres moving up some four or five, six million acres over last year. For one, we've got the prevent plant acres coming into the mix and, and relatedly a lot of corn on corn in the United States last year and the central Midwest going to the beans. It fits too with what we've seen in the price ratio uh, for the oil seeds. So yeah, it'll be big acres though or a race um, certainly to, to see which crop buys for the top spot in a lot of these areas where they might still be deciding. Okay, let's uh, let's play a little over under here on soybean acres. What is the number? Where, where's the line drawn where you say if it's over that, you know, the markets uh, react one way. If it's under that, the markets react the other way. I think right now we're uh, looking at something near 88, 87 million acres. I think it's a moving target at this point. But if we increase any more uh, over this year uh, than five or six million it's going to be i think taken negatively um, although it, it, you know it'll be of course uh, a picture of weather too at the moment one thing we're talking more about is if we really plan to plant a lot of acres we might have a really good start if the current dryness holds so that would be like kind of that back and forth on you know what we're, we're going to expect here in a couple of months we continue to watch South America, uh, their harvest, that delay in that harvest has given us a, a longer window for sales, but is that window going to stay open much longer? I think it will, and it's that window into China, right, that's so important, and we will expect that the top buyer will shift some demand over to Brazil as that soybean crop comes online. But a couple of things that are really different this year than they would have been a year ago was one, the, the delay, and so they're coming on a little bit later. You have had China extend some purchase interest into the U.S. for longer than normal, but maybe more importantly is, one, we have different currency terms, and they're more favorable to the U.S. exporter than they were because of that dollar-real relationship, and uh, two, we have possible goodwill from the Chinese continuing to buy from us to support a, a trade deal. Uh, and uh, goodwill with the new administration. And then just finally, the uncertainty about getting um, those exports from South America, if it is a slightly smaller crop, still uh, e each and every day worry about things like uh, trucker protests or, or port strikes. And then in Argentina, the tax questions and will they, won't they restrict exports. So we will see that demand shift over, I believe, but it's going to be less so than it has been in years past. And that's uh, something that's favorable, I think, still for our market. So what are you recommending on new crop sales? A cautious uh, approach, but take advantage of some opportunities now? Basically, yeah, because we do have a lot of farmers still talking about, well, what's next for old crop, meaning they've got old crop left. We're focusing on that because the premium's still in those nearby contracts. But, yes, we're going to hedge, maybe use some put option strategies to protect their risk on new crop, but generally be patient and thinking we're still going to have some upside yet this year or some seasonality still that worry about South American crops and U.S. planning, early season development, et cetera.
Yep. A lot to consider, that's for sure. Joe, thanks a lot. Good to get your perspective. We appreciate it. As always, thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Joe Camp, Director of Managed Programs for Comstock Investments. Wow. It has been an interesting last few days. Uh, talk, a lot of talk about uh, the markets and the weather, and I'm sure that's going to continue as well as well as what's going on in Washington. Uh, we'll keep a close eye on that as well. Stay warm. Stay safe. Hope you'll join us again on Monday right here on AOA. Take care, everybody. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.